only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. You can follow along in the blue pew Bible in front of you on page 949. Listen now to the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another and accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word. Let's go to God together and ask his blessing upon us. Lord, you have given us this word, and even as we read in this passage, it is given to us so that we could have comfort, so that we could have hope, so that we ultimately would be united as a body, united in worshiping you, united in our common confession of your glory to one another and before this world. Lord, what a, what a reversal of the fall. What a reversal of ugliness, brokenness of mankind and the mistreatment that people deal out to one another that we all have been a part of. As, as Paul said earlier in that passage in Titus that we, we hated and were, were hated. There, there is the mark. That's who we were. Being hated and hating. A part of the darkness. Generating darkness. Being, being fellow generators of darkness. And Lord, there's still so much in our lives that does not please you. We are in process. We are works that... You've begun and you will continue to the day of Christ Jesus. We, we come to you now in this passage that speaks uh, so directly for our treatment of one another. <clears throat> and we, we pray that it will not fall upon hard hearts and deaf ears. We pray, the Lord, that you would open us 
up. As you open Lydia's heart to understand the things spoken by Paul, to, to give herself to those, we pray that you would do that for us, Lord. As you cause the hearts of the men and the way to Emmaus to burn, may you cause our hearts to burn over the glory and beauty of Christ. And may we long to, to be like him. May we welcome and trust in his grace to conform us to that. May we give ourselves relentlessly to this word that forms us. May we believe in the great God of power that will change his church, that will conform us to the image of Christ. Bless us, Lord, for your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. Uh, Perhaps, uh, having gotten to... uh, In fact, I've had a few people... Say to me this week, oh, so chapter 15, I never thought you would get here. You know, uh, I, people beginning to believe we might finish this this year instead of the year 2013 or beyond. Um, but uh, it might be good for us to uh, gain again. It's been a couple of weeks here. Uh, and the, the context of this passage in Romans 15, after talking for so many chapters of the mercy of God and how God has brought us to himself through the work of Jesus Christ, gets to what some would say, okay, here's the practical part. Here's the therefore, right? Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, give ourselves completely up to God as living sacrifices and don't be conformed to this world. And what's interesting is when he says, give yourself up to God as a sacrifice, he immediately begins to talk about the horizontal. Like, don't be wise in your own estimation before other people. And that central verse right after that in verse twelve of chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And so here's then an exposition of love. Here's how love works itself out in, in a great detail. And then again in chapter 13, Owe no one anything except to love one another. The whole law is is summarized in this one word, to love your neighbor as yourself. So again, it's fascinating that, as he says, given all of this mercy of God, present yourself as a living sacrifice to be used in his hand. And then he turns immediately to this subject of caring for one another. So there is no true worship of God that's ever separated from loving one another. And any worship that proposes to be true, that causes its so-called worshipers to separate themselves from the word of God, from the people of God, to be independent, to be mavericks out there on their own doing their thing, them and God. Uh-uh. That's not the way it works. That our devotion to God expresses itself. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, faith shows itself, expresses itself in love. If we believe in Jesus Christ, it shows itself in our devotion to his people, our love to his people. And then in chapter 14, he gets really specific. And this is such a, a great issue of the weaker brethren who coming, their Jewish brethren that... Coming out of the Jewish faith with all of the restrictions of the Jewish faith of uh, certain foods to eat, uh, the days that they keep, 
uh, circumcision itself. And these were such a mark of their separation from people around them that it was very difficult for them to believe that in Christ these don't apply anymore. And Paul calls them the weaker brothers. And he talks about the largely talking about Gentiles now who didn't have those issues uh, and some Jews who had moved into that position of believing in the, in the work of Christ so that they didn't have to hold on to these things. They were called the strongest while the ones holding on to these things are called the weaker. Well, it's such a great issue in that uh, it brings up the point that we must submit to one another and serve one another in matters that in and of themselves aren't critical, but it's all in how we regard one another and how we serve one another in them. So it's such a a powerful uh, application of love because here the, the stronger people obviously are very likely to feel superior, to feel like, uh, these other people need to get on with it. These other people don't have our understanding. We're not going to include them in our richer fellowship. We're just going to kind of demean them and laugh at them and despise them. And, of course, the people who are really keeping the rules are looking at them as though uh, that they're the, the liberal people. They're the ones who don't, aren't really obeying God, aren't really, and he uses the word judging, you know, that they're being judged. So there's despising on one side, judging on the other side. So... This whole subject of love from 14 through this passage has to do with that issue. And so we're continuing. This is kind of the tail end of that issue of the strong and the weak. And he has this, this new terminology where he, this first time he's used the word strong, but even the word weak is different than the ones before. But instead of this word he's been using, he uses one here that really means to be unable Okay, and and the ones who are strong are able, and maybe even a better translation is the powerful and the powerless. It's very strong language that those who have this knowledge and have this strength are the powerful. And we know that in every society, the powerful are the ones who tend to wield an influence, and even they make the weak bear their own burdens and to bear their burdens. And the weak tend to grovel before them, even, in, in terrible ways. That's just the way it works. And Paul, uh, even Jesus said, you know, among men, the great among you are, are going to be the ones that exercise authority. And they, they like to gather servants around them. And the more people you have serving you, the greater you are, the mightier you are. And Jesus says, it's not this way in the kingdom of God. The greatest among you will be the servant of all. And, of course, he gave himself as the supreme example, even as Paul does here. Uh, He said, even the Son of Man. And he uses this phrase from Daniel 7 in which it says that the Son of Man uh, is this, this great figure who comes up to the Ancient of Days in heaven and to him is given all the kingdoms of God, of, of the earth. That's the great image of the Son of Man. And so Jesus uses that phrase, as he does often, to describe himself He says, even the Son of Man, who's going to receive all authority in heaven and earth, he didn't come to be served, but to serve. What a different kingdom this is. And see, this is also a part of how Paul began this whole section saying, don't be conformed to this world. Now, rightly so, we we tend to think 
mainly in terms of purity in that regard. And, and that's true. But in this context, the thing he seems to be emphasizing is don't be conformed to the world's tr- cruel and pompous, prideful treatment of one another. But serve one another, love one another, humble yourself before one another, seek one another out, seek to meet one another's needs. Don't be conformed to the way the world treats one another. You're in a whole new world, a world of the God and the Christ who has sacrificed himself for his people. And that's the very flavor, isn't it, of this passage. The strong have an obligation And you should read it not bear with as though it is to, you know, put up with or tolerate. Better translation is to bear the failings of the weak. The same word is used, for instance, in Galatians 6.2. And it's very instructive. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what is the law of Christ? It's like the law of Christ is not only what he taught, but what he was and is the one who bore our sins, who bore our griefs, as Isaiah 53 says. And many commentators would say this is a backdrop to this passage of the fact that the Messiah was going to bear our grief. Or as Matthew puts it in Matthew 8, 17, he bore our infirmities, he bore our diseases. And so we're to bear one another's failings, bear the weaknesses of our brothers and to hold them up, to be under their burdens and bear it. This is fulfilling the law of the Christ who himself has borne our burden. So immediately we're called to walk as Christ walked and to learn the joy and the liberty. Although, and this is the odd thing, it, seems, it doesn't seem like liberty to say, hey, put these burdens on your shoulders. We don't like those extra burdens. We like just the freedom of our own life and our own doing what we want to do. But he says, take on the burden of the weak and don't please yourself. And of course, if you can't bear with those who are unable then you must be one of them, right? Uh, One of those who need to be born up in that regard. But here's the important point. Strength is an illusion if we claim independence from our brothers and sisters in it. If we claim that I don't need the body or we claim a separation of involvement with the body, of getting enmeshed with the body, entangled with the body and its problems and its issues and its weaknesses and its hurts and pains, then there is no strength in us. There is no godly strength in us. That is what this is all about, is getting... And I'm using the word entangled because it sounds kind of negative, but it's kind of how we look at it. Uh, a better word is in, enmeshed, and, and really a better word is to have our roots wrapped around each other together, to sink together into the riches of Christ and to produce together the fruit of Christ. But we must see ourselves as not independent from one another, but that we're to bear one another's burdens and even bear with those who are weaker than us, conforming ourselves to whatever they need to conform ourselves to meeting uh, all of their 
their needs in Christ. And the, the idea of pleasing yourself in verse 1 is really the same as chapter 14, verse 7, where he says that we no longer live for ourselves. We're not here to live for ourselves, to please ourselves. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, he died that we would no longer live for ourselves. And so this just repeats this thing that's stated again and again. And then when he says, please his neighbor, it's the same as what he has said earlier in Romans 13, to love your neighbor. It recalls that Leviticus passage, love your neighbor as yourself. It just puts it in a different way, to please your neighbor. That's a bit confusing because there's so much in the New Testament about not being a man pleaser. Okay, For instance, in Galatians 1, Paul says, My gospel is straight from Christ, and I, didn't, and I don't proclaim it to please people. Galatians 1.10. Or later in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, after Paul had already suffered in another city, he said, we came to you in Thessalonica and we didn't hold back the truth. We weren't man-pleasers. And three weeks later, he's thrown out of Thessalonica too. So in that sense, we don't compromise or we don't condone someone's evil or flatter them and become man-pleasers in that regard. He even says to people who, uh, to uh, slaves, uh, don't be a man pleaser and only do your work when, you're, when your master's watching you. You know, in that sense, a man pleaser. But do it to, to God, no matter if he's looking or not. Do it sincerely, wholeheartedly. Not just lazy bum unless he's looking and you, you know, hurry up so he doesn't see you. So there's a lot in scripture about not being a man pleaser. But this is different. It's, it's the equivalent of love your neighbor. Do good to him. Please him in that way. But it has that flavor of bringing pleasantness to his or her life. You see, bringing benefit to his or her life. And that's where the phrase, for his good, for edification, to build him up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, in the same context of these kinds of things, where he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And in other words, I'm free to do so many things, but I, that's not the only question. The question is, will this build other people up? Will this hurt someone by my doing it? Even though I might say I have the freedom to do it. Uh, am I asking that question, does this build up? And so he says in the next verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's the same thing here. So this, this theme is just constant, isn't it, in the New Testament? But I'm not out for myself. I'm not out for my own comfort. I cannot isolate myself from my neighbor out of a supposed piety. You know, I'm, I'm just holy and it's just me and God. That is, that is not, that is all false. It is a sham. Uh, as one commentator says, I'm to find out who to please and to find out in what way I can please them. And again, in the sense of who do I need to benefit? Who can I benefit? Who needs my benefit? Use me, O oh Lord. Now imagine three, four hundred people that every day are just asking that question. Oh Lord, how can I be of benefit to the body of Christ? Oh, Lord, let me be taken up with this desire to learn the needs of our congregation, 
to enter the needs of the congregation, to adjust my schedule to the needs of the congregation, as many of you have in such wonderful ways. I've been amazed at some people that have needed uh, to be taken to uh, a center for older folks and infirm folks and ladies that would be committed to do this several times a week, just changing their whole schedule to get that person to that center. These kinds of things where we are adjusting ourselves and giving ourselves up for the week. Paul practiced this very thing. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, when I'm among the Jews, I become like a Jew. When I'm among the Gentiles, I become like a Gentile. When I'm among the weak, I become weak. And it's not that he's like all this, he's you know, he's two or three or four-faced person. But on these issues that don't matter, he would never let them come between the gospel and and these people. And let's just give a silly example. Suppose you were uh, called to live among a people that just loved orange and purple. That's the colors they all wore constantly. That's what they decorated with, orange and purple. That's what their buildings were adorned with, is orange and purple. You hate orange. You hate purple. You just hate it, you know. You never, you know, you have one thing in your wardrobe that's orange or purple. You don't have one thing in your house that's orange and purple. And you kind of shudder every time you see those colors, you know. Now imagine you saying, going into this, uh, this country, this, this people, and saying, my God is not forbidden, has not told me that I have to wear orange and purple. I'll not be bound by somebody's rules. No. I don't care what they wear. I have freedom before Christ to wear whatever I want to wear. No. Can you imagine? And, and orange and purple to them, just, it means if you wear these and if you have them, you are saying, I want to be a part of your life. You're saying, I accept you and love you. But imagine a person who, because of his hatred of orange and purple, won't wear it. You know, he's not going to wear it. Ideally, after years of ministry and wearing orange and purple and decorating with orange and purple... The guy can say, you know, aesthetically, I don't really like orange and purple, but in another way, because of these people and my love for them and what orange and purple has meant to us, my favorite colors, my favorite colors, you know. And you think, wow, that's an example of what we're talking about, where things that don't matter, things that don't matter they're pushed aside. They're sacrificed because I'm seeking to do good to others. I'm seeking to conform my ways in whatever way I can to them. And that means that the strong are bearing the, the burden of maintaining unity because that's what this is about. That's where it ends with united worshiping God. So the strong are taking the initiative to do all the changes necessary and the conforming necessary to bring about unity. Not saying we're the strong, we know more than you, we understand more than you, and get in line. And it's an amazing combination when leadership and authority and those who are, quote, powerful, as Paul even describes them here, show the true strength and power in their weakness, in their sacrifice, in their servanthood. Ready acceptance of the consequences of others' weaknesses and they identify with it in their day-to-day living for each other. And it becomes a part of their life. 
So Paul lays this before us. And it has a lot of different applications. You know, I think of older brothers and sisters with younger brothers and sisters. That's hard, you know. You really have to do so much for your younger brother and sister. And a lot of times when there's disagreement, you know, for you to take the initiative to try to fix the problems with your younger brother and sister. Uh, for you to have to put up with so much that they do because of their immaturity. And yet for you to be such a bigger person, such a stronger person to say, I'm going to serve my little brother, my little sister. That's a new thought. <laughs> Perhaps a new thought that I would be a servant to my brother or sister like Jesus is a servant to me. Instead of letting them just be a constant irritant and I hope I don't have to ever be around them. You know, I had one pastor tell me that uh, whose children are grown and they're all now a part of his church. And he said, the most amazing thing is that they're best friends. And he said, if you'd have told me while they were growing up that they're best friends, I'd have laughed in your face because of the way they were at each other. Well... I think of husbands with wives. I think that this pertains, it has the same flavor of 1 Peter 3 where he says, Husbands, know your wives, live with them as with the weaker vessel. You know, So that it's our duty to conform ourselves and bend ourselves around all the particular needs and, and uh, pe- peculiarities of our wives and their femininity to say, How do I figure this thing out and how do I... Give myself to it. And for some men who think it's strong to rule as tyrants, to be unbendable, to always win every argument, to always be right, to never apologize, uh, to never be broken and humble, to ask forgiveness, that's not strength. That's weakness. And by God's grace... As we look to Jesus Christ, we can become those kinds of men. Uh, We can become those kinds of older brothers and sisters. We can become these kinds of members of the church. But we all are bringing to the table, uh, you know, like like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he died that we'd no longer live for ourselves. There's something that's common for us. We were born bent in. We were born uh, out for ourselves We will, we did hate and we're hated. And it's only by the mercy of God, it's only by the mighty power of God which is going to be set before us that we could ever be changed. And so as he says this, the very next breath is because Christ didn't please himself, right? The minute we begin to think, well, you mean my whole life is just going to be pleasing other people? Doing good to others? What's in it for me? You know, that tends to be our thought, right? Well, who's going to please me? Who's going to do something for me? And immediately you think, golly, if Christ, if Christ had thought that, if Christ had been thinking in his supreme sacrifice, what's in it for me in that sense? But he, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he who was rich became poor for our sake, for your sake, so that we who are poor might become rich. There's the picture of Christ. And in this passage, it's interesting. It doesn't so much talk about what Christ bore in terms of God's wrath, okay? Like, uh, look to Christ who bore God's wrath for us. So, 
we should bear one another. But he talks about the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. It's a quote from uh, Psalm 69. And the other part of that verse is one that may be familiar that that was quoted in connection with Jesus cleansing the temple. Zeal for your house has consumed me. So put them together. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And therefore, the reproaches that were heaped upon God have been heaped upon me. In other words, because I've so identified with God and His cause, I'm so trying to uphold His glory that the hatred that's spent upon God fell upon me. That's, that's what's intended here. And the idea is, is more serious than we might think, that Jesus bore the rebellious blaspheming of man against God. That he bore the terrible, sickening enmity that we have against God. And really what Christ was upholding, as you can see this in a, in a passage like is it, that spans Mark 2 and Mark 3, and it's also in Matthew 12, it's a back-to-back treatment of the Sabbath. On one occasion, his disciples are eating grain on a Sabbath, and the Pharisees come after him because they say you're breaking the Sabbath. And another, uh, and, and it follows with the man with the withered hand that Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Well, in connection with both of those things and both of those passages, Jesus says, you need to learn what it means that uh, I love mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, you are despising the mercy of God and you're not manifesting the mercy of God. You're not tasting the mercy of God. You don't live out the mercy of God. And in the other passage, it ta- and, and when it talks about his healing the man with the withered hand, he says, which one of you, if your oxen fell in a ditch, you wouldn't get it? He just looks around at them and they don't answer because they're silent. He says, he was angry at them for the hardness of heart. I just couldn't believe that these men who would claim the mercy and love of God would not care for this man with the withered hand. They didn't care about him. They didn't want Jesus to heal him. And so what Jesus stood up for was the glory of the mercy of God. The glory of a God who pours himself out for sinners, who welcomes sinners and rescues sinners. He held the glory of God up and that's why he was, he was crucified. And the anger that we all have toward God, the anger that we have toward his authority and toward his mercy and everything that he stands for, this all fell upon the Lord Jesus And there's an absurdity and insanity of our puny, pathetic man whose very strength, his very voice and breath and heartbeat are upheld by God. And now he reproaches that God. There's just something so bizarre about it. That's what Christ bore. The full menace of the world's blind fury was unleashed. It's like the world's compacted, concentrated loathing and hostility toward God. It Christ bore it. And we can't separate ourselves from it as though, well, if we'd have been there, you know, well, those Pharisees, those Jewish leaders, because they just represent the world's hatred. They represent our hatred. 
Because like it says in 1 John, yes, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But it also says this, he was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's us. There's a scene in Avatar. Uh, you may or may not like that movie. It's a, there's a scene where Jake is made one of the people, okay? And he's in the center and several people have their hands placed on him. And then the whole of the people gather around this huge wave of them and each one of them has their hands upon the one in front of them show that the whole of the village now is initiating him into one of the people. Just imagine all of us, hands on one another, all participating and at the center, the Jewish leaders and a dagger is in the chest of Christ. That's us, okay? He bore the world's hatred against God. The reproaches against God fell upon him. And that terrible tyranny of the world, the power of the world to do whatever it wants to in in view of there being no God or they don't care what God is. And see, this then is a commentary on what he said earlier in chapter 14, verse 15, when he says... If your brother, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, are you not going to bear with the weak when he bore the reproaches against God? And you just kind of wither and think, what was I thinking? How could I even conceive that I wouldn't be enmeshed in the needs and burdens of this congregation and seek people out to know how I might please them for their good and for their edification and be a part of this body in every way I can so that whatever capacity I have to do people good, I can make myself available. How could I think otherwise when look what Christ did for me? That's the feel of what Paul is saying here. And it's not just to put Christ before us and make us feel all the more weak and you know worthless and who am I? But it's to show that Christ's very bearing of this reproach has so redeemed us and brought us out of darkness and redeemed us from living for ourselves that we really can live for Christ. That a greater and greater vision of His beauty frees us to give ourselves to one another in this wonderful way. And some have thought that the next verse, uh, we're going to move on through these few. I know we're about time to, uh, we need to end. But the, the, uh, the next verse, some have thought was even inserted by somebody later because it seems to just jump out of nowhere. Where he says, for whatever was written in former days. And it's, it's almost as though Paul is saying, you realize it now. I've just quoted Psalm 69. You realize now, that all the scripture does this same thing. And so you see his enthusiasm. He says, you realize that all the scripture is, is meant for this purpose. That we can see God's redemptive work all through history that finally culminates in Christ. And all of it is for our encouragement. All of it brings comfort to us and brings us to a point of hope. So that we can look to what Christ has accomplished. We can look to how God has redeemed His people and think, there's hope for us to be unified as a body. There's a final hope of the unity of Jew and Gentile, as he will talk later in the chapter. And we can anticipate that. In our unity, we can be an anticipation of the unity of the new heavens and the new earth. And the Scripture helps us see that. It was written for that. 
And it's not as though the Old Testament... You see, he's talking about the Old Testament here. It's not as though the Old Testament is done. Romans 4, after he talks, he gives the example of Abraham. He says, it was written for us. And I hope that will echo in your head to think, for you, for you, for you, for you. Practical for you, for encouragement every day, for hope every day, so that you can endure every day. He's given this word for you. Don't ignore it. Don't do anything but gladly welcome it and treasure it and sink your roots into this word. And it's interesting how this consolation, this encouragement is obviously a vital part of our unity. Interesting that he's talking now about endurance and consolation and hope. You think, well, I thought he was talking about unity. But you see, our own comfort and consolation in Christ and in the Scriptures are necessary for us more and more to be outflowing in unity and love to one another. The Word must supply this for us so that we can uh, encourage one another. And then he has this great prayer uh, to end, May the God of endurance and encouragement. He's just mentioned endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures... And then he says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. And these aren't two different things. God brings this endurance and encouragement through the Scripture, but it is nothing less than God that must do it. If we're going to have this kind of devotedness to one another, it is the work of God alone. He is the only source for it. It is not a human attainment. It's not by following a few rules. And it is, it is part of His salvation. It is, it is ineffective without the direct help of God, His power. But He works through His Word. Because the Scripture is that which brings encouragement and endurance. The God is the one who brings this endured encouragement. And notice, through that, to live in this harmony uh, with one another. This word harmony is taken from the political sphere. It, It means a unanimous vote, okay? So that there's this unanimity, this unanimous vote on what? Unanimous vote that we love and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. There's where our unity is, that we're all submitted to His glorious Lordship. We're all amazed at His sacrifice for us. And this causes us to melt into one desire to glorify God. And that's the end result, isn't it? That such harmony for what? That you will one with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we are made one for the point of worship and for the point of confessing Him before the world. So you don't truly glorify God unless you're part of this process to unite yourselves in love for one another. You see how the two can't be pulled apart. I can't say that I'm off somewhere glorifying God separate from the people of God. Paul says, no, it's through the encouragement of the Scriptures, this mutual hope that brings about this unity, that brings about this mutual servanthood. And the final issue is we put our arms around each other and we praise God and we make Him known in the world. That's the picture right here before us. And so 
We don't truly glorify God unless our hearts are united in His praise. We don't glorify God just in our own way. We are joined together in this. And God is bringing it about. And at the very beginning of Romans, he talked about verse 21 of chapter 1. Though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking. And he goes on to talk about the hatred and the, the, the huge tear in human society that, that stemmed from this. Where here is Paul picturing the restoration of that brokenness, of unity brought together through the work of Jesus Christ and through His Holy Spirit, united to praise this God that we began by rejecting and despising and turning away from Him and worshiping idols and then uh, attacking one another. Now, a restoration in unity and a restoration of the worship of this, this true God. The reversal of Romans 1. Praise God that we can be a part of that. Praise God that we can be a monument to that by God's grace. May He give it to us. The one who died for us will surely do it. Let us pray. O Lord, Paul said in Philippians 2, have this mind in you that is yours in Christ Jesus. That that Christ himself had when he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself a servant. Lord, may we have that mind in ourselves. Through your Holy Spirit, who is creating, who has created a new self after the image of God. You are by your Spirit, Paul says, conforming us. As we look at the glory of Christ, you're conforming us to his image. Oh, Lord, individually, as a congregation, may we show forth the image of one, Him, who bore the reproaches that fell upon God. May we, Lord, in some way, more and more gloriously, reflect the joyous sacrifice of Jesus Christ and how we deal with one another. And may our praise of you become louder, more vehement, more emotional, more tear-stained, more full of overflowing joy, overflowing amazement, and not only a sense of your glory, but a sense of our love to one another and our devotion to one another in the midst of worship. Bless us, Lord. Bless us. For as we see in this passage, it is only the God of endurance and encouragement that can bring it about. It is your work, Lord. We are your workmanship. We're not our own. We belong to you. You've bought us. Oh, Lord, form us into the image of Jesus. And we thank you that you surely will. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America.
shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?